Hello and welcome to the Antique Auction Forum podcast. We're recording live stream on YouTube. And we're going to be talking Leonardo today about the recent $450 million. Uh, it actually shattered the world record uh, previously was $300 million for any artwork at auction. So we're going to be talking about that. And before I introduce our guest, just a little bit about the show. Um, I started this podcast back in 2009. There are over 180 free podcasts at antiqueauctionforum.com. And you're welcome to check those out there. You can put them on iTunes, your media player, or whatever. A lot of informational things there. My background, in a nutshell, I'm a second-generation auctioneer, antique, and fine art appraiser. And I've been loving what I have been doing since 1970. And that includes auctioneering, appraising estates, corporate and institutional collections, and cataloging at auction houses all around the U.S. Uh, My appraisal website is seaboardappraisals.com. Now about our guest, Martin Kemp. Um, He is an emeritus uh, research professor in history of art at Oxford University. He has written and broadcast extensively on imagery in art and science from the Renaissance to the present day. Leonardo da Vinci has been the subject of his books written by him, including uh, Leonardo. uh, That's an Oxford University Press. Uh, in 2004, and you can find out more about Martin at Martin, uh, I should say www.martinjkemp.com. All right, so welcome to the show, Martin. Yeah, pleasure to be on. Yes, and uh, you were on before we talked about another uh, discovery, which is very, I mean, I hear like it's a once in a hundred year um, experience discovering an unknown da Vinci. But there is actually another one floating out there. We'll talk about that later on if you want to, or any sure. updates on that one quickly, because you were on the show about that before at one time. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that later on. But uh, for the listener, um, can you just uh, let uh, us know how you got interested in the subject of da Vinci in the beginning? Yeah, so- it was kind of accidental in a way. Uh, I didn't study him when I was doing postgraduate studies in, in any detail. I thought he looked big and difficult. Um, and it was a kind of accident. A young TV producer uh, training with the BBC was going to do his diploma program, not to be transmitted, but just you know, as a graduation program, as it were. And he chose to do it on Leonardo's water drawings. And Uh, Clearly, he went to the big people like Ernst Gombrich and John Sherman, who I was a student of, and they weren't going to do a program that wasn't to be transmitted. And somewhere along the line, they came to me and they said, would you help? And I said, yes, not knowing even vaguely how I was going to do that. And uh, Ernst Gombrich lent us his then unpublished paper on the form of movement in air and water looking at all the vortex configurations and all these exciting drawings and reading the Gombrich paper, I thought, ah, I I know what's happening here. I I felt like I was coming home in a way that uh, my background in natural sciences at least meant I had um, some feeling and sense of what was happening in in such things. And I did a bit of geology also at at Cambridge. So um, it, it just seemed to make sense. And having worked on that program on 
on the Leonardo drawings of water. I don't know why they chose that. I thought, where do I begin with Leonardo? I was mainly natural sciences, so I started looking at the anatomy. Ah, and uh, that is fascinating. I mean, he, I, I believe he dissected over thir or around 30 um, humans, but also animals as well, right? Yeah, the Leonardo later in life, when he was in the French court, he was visited by the Cardinal of Aragon's visiting party and the, the secretary, Antonio de Beatis, looked at what Leonardo had with him, including the anatomical drawings, and Leonardo claimed to have dissected large numbers of bodies. I think he rolled in that a um, uh, lot of animal dissections, um, so I don't think we can literally take it that he dissected large numbers of human bodies. Human material was very rare, difficult to come by. Um, you had to have special protocols, and um, I don't think he did many full human dissections, but uh, animals were thought to be differently arranged, but essentially the same. And he, he dissected horses and, uh, uh, and oxen and uh, other animals. Now, he was planning to do a treatise on human anatomy that he, it, never, uh, it was never completed. Is that, is that right? Did I hear that? Yes. He, the earliest signs of that are in 1489. He, he was in Milan, and it was in the court of Milan he really had time and opportunity to pursue his intellectual pursuits. And there's the, that's the first mention of a book on, on anatomy as such. Uh, it's difficult to see by the end of his career that he could fit everything he'd done into one book. He said in 1510, I'm hoping to bring to conclusion all, all this anatomy um, in, scattered across all these many these many folios, these many, many books, the many codices and so on. But, um, yeah, it became an almost impossible task. He could have written a treatise on the heart alone by the end of his life. Wow. Wow. Now, how much of the, that part of what he was doing had to do with artwork? Um, did he want to, uh, uh, you know, basically understand the human body and how it, how it works as far as his, his paintings and artwork? His predecessors in Florence, uh, Antonio Pagliolo, Verrocchio, his master, Michelangelo to a degree, they concentrated on what lay under the surface of the flesh, that's to say the muscles and the bones, and they were interested in the structure and the movement. Where Leonardo departs is he looks for deeper causes. He wants to know how does the brain work, how does the eye see, um, how does the circulation, or not circulation, but how does the movement of the blood work? So he saw that not literally serving painting in that very obvious way of saying, I, I can portray a figure much better if I know where the muscles are. He said, I really need to understand how a human being works, and I can then make remake the human being in my pictures. So his ambition is related to pictures, and indeed, uh, painting is a supreme expression of Leonardo's knowledge of the natural world. But it's not functional in that more obvious sense. He's going into very deep-lying causes as to how a human being operates. Wow. Yeah, interesting. So getting on to our topic today, the what was uh, a painting titled uh, Salvatore Monday, uh, Savior of the World, I believe that's what it translates to or close to it, right? Yes. Indeed, though Leonardo, as we will see, transforms it into something slightly different. 
Uh, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, I want to read quickly uh, uh, an excerpt uh, from an article in the New Orleans Advocate. Um, Quote, the painting was sold again in 1958. Then it was acquired in 2005, badly damaged and partly painted over by a consortium of art dealers who paid less than $10,000, um, 84.45 euros at auction at an auction house in Louisiana, unquote. Now, why is most of the press, not that it matters any, but why is most of the press saying that this was bought at an estate sale and not an auction? Do you have any idea? I don't know that. Uh, my understanding is it was when... Uh, Robert Simon and Alexander Parrish, the two, the two first dealers who were involved with it, noted it. I think it was in a sale in Louisiana. Yeah, and an auction. Sorry, at an auction, indeed. Yeah, right, That's right. my understanding. And why, uh, the thing, that, the question that came to mind, just being in the business that I am, um, is why um, this $10,000, it's not really a lot to invest, so why was there a consortium involved to begin with? Uh, there wasn't really a consortium. Um, auctioneers now, as you, you will know, spend a lot of time combing uh, catalogs online, auction catalogs. And uh, they do that for the smaller auctions, and they, uh, they often bid without seeing the object if it's, uh, if it's not going to be too expensive, and they think it's worth a punt, as they say. And uh, they both, they, know, they knew each other, but they both noticed it independently and exchanged views on it. And although it looked pretty terrible, it looked like what I described as a drug-crazed hippie at that point. It was heavily overpainted. It was clearly fairly old. It was painted on walnut panel. Therefore, they thought, well, you know, there, there are lots of versions of the Salvatore Mundi. This is at least an old one. Let's... Um, Let's have a go at it. If it proves not to be very much, then in terms of the prices of old master paintings, they, they were not they were not going up very high in the scale of things. Could you hold on just a minute? My front door is. is can we just break for a moment? Sure. Uh, yeah, we are live. So, um, sure, go ahead. A man, is, a man has got all my doors, front and back doors, off the hinges at the moment, fitting <laughs> okay. drafting. All right. That's fine. Yeah. All right. So I'll talk a little bit. Um, so this um, this painting, um, you know, it's one of these things where if you um, if if you saw this in an auction, you know, uh, I'm sure a lot of people are kicking themselves because you know the payday of this thing ended up being a world record, four hundred fifty million dollars, which is quite amazing. Um, and it just one of the questions I'll be asking, you know, how many hands did this actually slip through? By the time it actually hit the auction block on, I think it was November 15th. Um, I also want to find out, um, you know, there's a lot of speculation about who bought this. And uh, just today in uh, the New York Times, there was an article about, um, about trying to find out, trying to root out who the buyer was of this. We'll be talking about that and uh, a lot more. And he's back. So... Uh, Martin, so did you have any more uh, continuation of what you were talking about, or you want to keep moving on here? Yes, basically they they bought it at that price, and it was taken back to New York and was put in Robert Simon's hands, and it was he who then instigated the research and the cleaning of the picture, the restoration of it. 
Now, I have uh, up on the screen right now some restoration images. And um, I, I guess the question I, I want to ask, and I'm sure you've answered this a number of times, but how far into the restoration process did um, did all of a sudden the light come on that, you know, I think we really have something here? Yeah, I think it was pretty early. Um, Robert Simon took it to the Modestines uh, and, and the uh, husband and wife and Diane, who he he's about ninety, but Diane was actively involved still in in conserving, and he took it across New York in a in a bin line, I believe it or not, <laughs> oh. um, and. Um, they did a she did a test clean just to see what was happening and it was perfectly obvious that there was heavily overpainted and that the overpaint would come off relatively readily and i think it was pretty soon in that they thought this is actually interesting they didn't think ah this is the Leonardo original it, it took much more than that but the the initial cleans suggested that there was a, a good and worthwhile painting underneath the the overpaint now, um, with infrared, they saw the thumb repositioning, and that was kind of like an aha moment, right? Uh, the thumb became visible during the cleaning. Uh, as, the, mm -hmm. uh, as the overpaint was cleaned off, that area, um, and paint becomes more translucent over time, and often the pentimenti, the regrets, to translate the word, the... Uh, the changes of mind sometimes become more apparent as they come through the upper layers, and that happened with the that happened with the thumb and uh, a pentimento, a change of mind doesn't mean to say it has to be the original, but it it helps a good deal as it says well it's not just a purely mechanical copy uh back when you and I spoke about the labella principessa um I remembered there was a gentleman named I believe Pascal in France that did some imagery um, that was fascinating. I can't remember what the pixels were, but um, was any of that done with this, with this picture? Yeah, this has been very, uh, it's been examined by x-rays, by infrared reflectography, which is a technique of bouncing infrared rays off the priming and you pick up, um, with any luck, you pick up drawings and changes which are, um, done in with carbon rich pigments uh, yeah no, it's been fully scientifically examined and uh, yeah there are some pentimenti some changes of mind around the top of the garment you can see that the the knot design has turned from a curvy knot design into a rather angular knot design like you can see at the moment um, you could see particularly in infrared where Leonardo had pressed the the heel of his right hand into the paint to soften the the, the, the transitions between light and shade. We wow. know he did that a lot, and it's very characteristic of Leonardo. The the boys don't seem to have done that. Um, wow. And the technical examination, yeah, revealed a number of very very characteristic things. They also found that the priming was very extraordinary. That uh, Leonardo is. He he had a gesso priming, i.e. plaster, then he put white lead on top. And unusually, Leonardo sometimes tinted selected areas or the whole of the areas, um, depending on what color was going to go on top. And in this case, it seems that he ground some glass up 
and put it in these priming layers, which wow. presumably was intended to give a kind of radiance to the picture. So oh, that, wow. that very eccentric technical experimentation, which almost differs from picture to picture, is again very characteristic of Leonardo, and the, 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 the followers in the studio were more conservative in that respect. Now, I wonder why he chose a panel that had a knot in it, which later caused the crack. Yeah. And luckily, around the face, it didn't go through the face. It's a, it's a walnut panel, and he liked walnut panels for these smaller-scale pictures. It's, a, it's Obviously, he felt that it was a good surface to paint on. And I think he, he obviously wouldn't have been aware that the, it was going to warp and, and crack in that way. And indeed, I think if it had been kept in better conditions, one imagines it had been badly affected by uh, an environment with huge changes of humidity. It was certainly in Britain for some time, and uh, uh, surviving in the British climate of uh, humidity changes is rather different from surviving oh, yeah. in Italy. Right, right. Now, about the um, rest, since we're, we're kind of talking about the restoration part of this, um, there's talk about only 20% or so of, of this painting is original. And, uh, you know, the rest is basically in painting in the restoration. So, yeah. and I know very, very well done. But in your opinion, at what point um, does a masterpiece not become, you know, considered the work of uh, an old master? Well, first of all, the 20% is absolutely 100, 100% misleading. Okay. Uh, if you say how much survives of the Leonardo surface in its absolutely pristine condition, then you might get down to that kind of level. Uh, but if you look at the picture and it was stripped down and you, you're back to original paint, uh, it's, it's quite high. I, I wouldn't wish to quantify it very precisely, but I would say about 80% of the panel is covered in paint that Leonardo put on. Wow. Some of that is underpainting or lower layers some places of the top layers hasn't survived so it's quite a, it's quite complicated i have to say if you saw all the pictures we now delight in in, in galleries whether the metropolitan museum the louvre or the national gallery in london wherever if you saw them stripped down that is to say all the infilling all the restoration all the conservation work removed we, we'd be quite um, quite shocked by how damaged a lot of these pictures are. Yes. So the 80% is, um, is a nonsense. It's, um, uh, if, if it was literally 80%, if you stripped off all the overpainting, you would only have 20% of the panel covered in paint, and that's absolutely not the case. I see. So that is misleading in a lot of the articles that you see out there. So I'm glad, well, you, I'm glad you cleared it, that up. Yeah, people cite this. I mean, it's, it, it's sloppy, and journalists... Um, who are looking for sensations tend to tend to be rather sloppy, and they pick up that figure as if some if it's got some authority. And I, I don't know where it came from, uh, huh. but uh, as as we know, fake news gets repeated. <laughs> That's right. Um, so uh, the question I have about this: this thing was lost in time a couple of times, in a couple of different stretches. Um, how does something like that happen? Well. If you look at the Leonardo paintings, there is only one painting which has got an absolutely continuous provenance. That's to say the history of its ownership, and that's The Last Supper. 
and that's on a wall, so uh. <laughs> it's not going to get lost probably unless it was covered up. But anyway, it's only the Last Supper. The Mona Lisa has gaps in its history. Um, we don't know how it got into uh, Francis I's collection. It was in Fontainebleau by 1550, but Leonardo died in 1519, so there's a uh, there are there are gaps in the provenance. Um, yeah, and the Cecilia Gallerani, the wonderful painting of the lady with the ermine in Krakow, that really appeared in the in the nineteenth century. Um, really, wow! The Benoit Madonna in the Hermitage appeared early twentieth century. So um, yeah, things things disappear. They get neglected. They get overpainted, or they're in in obscure collections. Um, which haven't been visited by people who are recording the the works of art or whatever. Yeah, it, it, it's common enough. Um, you just mentioned the painting, and I forget what the animal's called. It looks like a ferret. What's that? What? It's an ermine. It's an a ermine. it's yeah. it's a it's an oversized ermine. Um, and the ermine is a symbol of purity and moderation. That's um, a, that's actually just that's my favorite painting. Oh, it's beautiful, yeah. Yeah, it's just wonderful. Um, but, okay, back to this one. Um, so this was lost. Uh, there is a picture, I believe it's 1908 or something like that. Um, and that was the last time it had surfaced. Is that correct? And then it, it, it became lost from there for a while? Yeah, but there's the question of the earlier provenance and uh, uh, I'm right with Robert Simon, who's the prime discoverer of the picture, and Margaret Dalaval, one of my former students who are writing a book on it. And Margaret Dalaval has uh, w has got a lot of the, the 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 provenance of it when it was in the collections of Charles I in the Interregnum after Charles I had been beheaded, um, and Charles II and then the Duke of Buckingham. So she's got a bit of the middle of the provenance, as it were. Um, getting it from um, Leonardo to that point, there's a gap, and then there's a gap when it appears in the in the Cook collection. And Cook was a a major English collector, particularly um, collected Italian paintings. This was late 19th, early 20th century, and it was in his collection. And by that time, it was obviously not in good condition, and it was described as Boltraffio or School of Boltraffio. Boltraffio was a Leonardo pupil. Um, so it was it was known to be in that collection, and it was sold in the 1940s, so one of the last dribs and drabs of things to be sold from the Cook collection. And wasn't it at a sum, or am I thinking of a later in 1958, uh, something like 45 that, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It was sold for some pretty derisory sum, and if you'd seen, if it, there was a black and white photograph of it when it was in the in the Cook collection, and it looked awful. Yeah, um, there was a beard added, like a little mustache, and right. Yeah, yeah there's a droopy beard, and the <laughs> the, the eyes look um, completely glazed, as if somebody's been sniffing noxious substances. And, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this this appears in 2005. It comes up. Uh, we talked about it earlier at a, an auction in Louisiana. It comes up um, now. Uh, what 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 happens then? And who? How many hands does it go through before it actually hits the auction block? Well, it, 
the, the two dealers have invested in it, not huge sums of money, but they've invested in it. Robert is directing the cleaning of it. And at a certain point, they think, well, you know, this is actually the real thing. They've got the Pentimento, they've got the scientific examination, they've, they've seen this absolutely wonderful handling. The best preserved bits of the picture are just spectacular. They really kind of fizz with vitality. Um, with Leonardo's very remarkable um, way of conjuring up light on form, and uh, and it it then becomes caught up in the what to do with it. They need to get it out into the public domain, and the National Gallery in London is devising its show of Leonardo at the Court of Milan, and uh, they obviously put it in the direction of the National Gallery and uh, Luke Sison, the curator who's working on the show, and Nick Penny, who is the director of the National Gallery and an expert on Italian art, amongst other things. Um, uh, it was taken across to them, and I received a, an email from Nick Penny saying, we've got something uh, in the gallery which I think you might like to see. Um, and I went up to the gallery in London. Um, Pietro Marani, the great Leonardo Scholar from Milan was there, Maria Teresa Fiorio, the superintendente, the superintendent of Milanese paintings was was there, and um, Carmen Bambach from the, uh, the great drawer, drawer, expert on Leonardo drawings um, was there from the Metropolitan, and um, we saw it in the conservation studios beside the Virgin of the Rocks, which was being considered for cleaning in in advance of the show. And uh, at that point, had it been restored to the condition it is now? Uh, there was still a bit of work on the background and and the 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 the, the, the second thumb, as it were, the change of position of the thumb hadn't at that point, as I recall, been painted over. But yeah, it was substantially like it is now. And uh, so, how did it hit you? Leonardo's have a presence. Um, you, you all know any you've seen, and um, you talked about the Cecilia Gallerani, the Lady of the Krakow in Ermin. They have an extraordinary kind of living presence. Um, some artists can do that. Rembrandt does that with self-portraits. Michelangelo can do it with marble. They have that kind of living presence, as if they're not just made out of pigment or stone, in the case of Michelangelo sculptures. And... Uh, it was immediately apparent that it was a strange picture. It has this uncanny quality to it, which particularly the later Leonardo's tend to have. But, I mean, that's not enough to say it's by Leonardo, but it's a, it's a good starting point. So, yeah, I, I, you tend to, I, I thought, what do I do? I played it rather cool and <laughs> um, uh, said hello to the other people and, uh, and then looked at it carefully and one of the things I observed straight away is that the sphere which Christ is holding in his left hand, uh, it, you think, well, that's a glass sphere, but it's not glass. Um, typical Salvatore Mundi have brass spheres that they're holding. Sometimes they do glass, particularly in Venice, which was a major center for glass. But this is not a glass sphere. I could see that it was full of little gaps or not exactly bubbles in the case of <clears throat> having glass but there are little internal marks in the sphere 
and I remembered enough of my Cambridge geology to think that's rock crystal, oh. um, and a, a rock crystal sphere with uh, what are technically called inclusions, these little faults. Sometimes they have cleavage planes. This one didn't have cleavage planes, but um, um, uh, so I said that's rock crystal without um, without very much evidence for it, but it's just an instinctive reaction. And that becomes interesting then because why does Leonardo use rock crystal? Um, he was considered an expert in these semi-precious materials, but why did he use it in the painting? Hmm. And it's clear that he's altering the iconography, the subject matter of the picture, that the crystalline sphere, as known at the time, was with the sphere of the fixed stars. So the, the, the fixed stars, the constellations, uh, uh -huh. like Plough and Big Dipper or whatever, um, which go round and seem to circulate in a, in a in a sort of orbit in a in a world of their own, uh, uh, um, uh, that was in the Renaissance called and following Ptolemy in classical antiquity was called the crystalline sphere of the fixed stars. So what he's doing is saying that Christ isn't just savior of the earth; he's savior of the cosmos. He's savior oh. of the whole, the whole planetary cosmological system. I was wondering what that represented. I was going to ask you that. Now, how come, you know, I mean, the, the little bubbles or inclusions are really something when you look at it closely, but how come the robe is not distorted with the light refraction like it should be? Do you think that was purposeful? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely deliberate. Um, the, what would happen with the sphere varies according to how far you read it away from the draperies, but if it's being held by his arm some way, uh, some way out uh, from, the, from the draperies themselves, what would happen there, you'd really need to carefully experiment, that you get a lot of very, you get inversion and a lot of very strong uh, curvilinear distortion. Now, Leonard is not going to do that. It's going to... Uh, dominate the whole picture and make it look very peculiar yeah it would draw your eye to it wouldn't it yeah he wouldn't for instance uh, in the baptism of christ show christ's legs as refracted in water and no artist would do that and there were lots of effects visual effects that leonardo said uh, were for the speculatori for the philosophers for the people who think about natural things he knew that if something moved fast it was blurred but he wouldn't paint blur in a picture. Mm -hmm. if, uh, so there were visual effects which would be violate decorum, that's to say the good manners which um, you would expect to observe, particularly in a devotional subject of this sort. So, yeah, he, he, if, if people assume that he's going to follow the optical truth of the picture down to the very end this is not what he does he's making functional pictures i see now let's talk about the emotional part of this painting because i think that's really interesting there's a, a video that shows you know people looking at it for the first time um did you feel as though this painting also had an emotional quality when you saw it in person it has this quality in a way that the mona lisa has that there is an emotion there. There's a sense that the figure is looking at you and reacting and you're reacting, but it's, it's not clearly defined. It's a, it's a very elusive emo emotion. 
it's not simply something that um, is saying I am asserting my sovereignty over you or I'm inviting you or I'm smiling at you uh, in an accessible way. It's got that mysterious quality. It's, it's about the ineffable, about something which is there in our space but can't be fully understood. And Christ, after all, comes from heaven. So although he's incarnate, he's turned into flesh and blood like you and me, he remains this ultimate uh, spiritual figure and ultimately not knowable in a very literal sense by our limited human mind. So it's an exercise in in the ineffable, in the in the spiritual, in the inaccessible, as well as something we can see. Yeah, yeah, in- really interesting. You know, I think we skipped around. I want to walk it back just a little bit um, to, um, I asked you about how, you know, the hands um, changed. I don't think we quite finished that part of it. Um, when it when it went to auction, um, how many different ownerships had it had before, I mean, since 2005 when it was first dis- rediscovered? Which auction do you mean? Sorry. Uh, the auction in Louisiana, it was, just, it was found in, in, yeah. in, in 2005, but I yeah. just wanted to know until it went to auction and brought the record price, um, you know, the ownership, how many times, um, how many times had it changed hands? Well, there's the gap between it being in Leonardo's possession and in the possession of his pupil, Selai. Uh, and we don't then know certainly what happened to it, who owned it, <clears throat> before it ended up in the collection of Charles I um, in the uh, 1630s, say. Um, so there's that big gap. We don't know how many hands it passed through. Oh, I'm it, sorry. I, I'm sorry for the confusion. No, I meant... Um in 2005, it was bought by um, some dealers, and did they yeah. hang, they sold it? It sold like two other times before it went to auction. Is that right? No, it's not known. Um, it was in the in the sale of the Cook collection. It was knocked down to somebody called Kuntz, which may simply be a, a sort of made up name for the sake of. Um, and uh, it then appears in Louisiana, and we don't know what. There are, as far as I know, there are no intermediate stages that we know about. It could have been in in the same collection the whole time. It could have changed hands once, twice, three times, for all I know. Okay. Uh, now, there is always, uh, when it comes to da Vinci, there's always conspiracies. You know, Dan Brown, I think, may have helped that along in his books. What have you heard about uh, conspiracies? I'm sure you're, you've been contacted about this yeah, piece. I, less than with some pictures. I mean, the, the Mona Lisa is a field day for the for the brown type people. I get sent um, things about Persian script in in the Mona Lisa, talking about Nostradamus's prophecies, etc., etc. And there are there are lions and there are monkeys and alligators in the landscape, etc., etc. Um, there's less of that, but I've been sent things about. Um, uh, using mirroring techniques to compare the sides of the face and to come up with elaborate conclusions about uh, psychological mysteries or statements about the duality of the human condition and so on. Um, but, but so far, uh, all hot up, so far I've had relatively fewer of conspiracy theories than 
um, than I might expect. But uh, no doubt it takes some time for the for the secrets and in inverted commas to emerge. Yeah, I, I figured someone would read something in the embroidery work or something like that. <laughs> oh, they haven't done so so far. Yeah, the the the, the knot pattern is interesting. It's almost certainly post Venice. Because in in earlier Leonardo knot patterns, he was interested in these curving shapes, um, and in Venice he saw Islamic patterns. He was in Venice briefly in 1500, after Milan, and uh, the, the the pattern on the on the stoles on the bands across his chest. These are essentially Islamic rectilinear patterns. So, mm. um, the picture. Uh, is, it's being painted after 1500. All right. Um, so we're going to be talking in a little bit about the auction, you know, what happened at auction, uh, about the rumored uh, buyer, where it may end up, all that. But uh, before that, let's talk about the authentication of this painting. And uh, I know there's an art critic um, named Jerry Saltz. He has a lot to say. Um, are, was this a difficult piece? Is it still ongoing as far as the... Um, authenticity of this and does the huge price tag play into what's happening as far as that discussion goes yeah what happened was that it was handled initially very sensibly it was shown to a number of leonardo specialists um privately to give them a chance to examine it and so on and uh, uh, the majority of Leonardo specialists uh, accepted it. Uh, Frank Zollner didn't, but he was in Germany and hadn't seen the original, but now he has. And the the objections have come from people who don't understand Leonardo, don't understand Renaissance painting, don't understand the rules that uh, that pertain, and got column inches by rubbishing something which is... Uh, uh, which went for 450 million pounds. So there's a very strange dynamic. It uh, it absolutely wasn't heavily questioned by Leonardo experts, apart from Carlo Progetti, who has never seen it and seems not to be aware of it uh, in its post-restoration form. But um, uh, no, there there are a number of, a number of critics got uh, good column inches by saying very silly things. Now this uh, there's so many similar copies. Um, made of this piece at one time there was a an example that was thought to be by uh, Leonardo um, and uh, the question I have for you was this like the school of Leonardo I mean who are, who are copying these pieces um, to begin with yeah. Leonardo is massively copied even the Mona Lisa which is a portrait of a private person was copied a lot relatively early the devotional pictures were copied both in the studio. The studio boys used the resource resources in the studio for producing additional Madonnas and so on. And uh, Leonardo was a brand in Milan. He was very much copied. There were people who turned out Leonardo-like paintings. And I think the, Robert Simon has been sort of logging up these. And at one point, he was over 40 copies. And um, the one which was probably the most striking was in formerly in the Degani collection and owned by the Countess de Behag before that. Rather a stri <clears throat> striking picture which um, 
uh, an American scholar claimed was the original for a whole series of reasons. It's it's not the original. The technical examination reveals an underdrawing not like Leonardo. Um, the anatomical feeling of the hand isn't very good, etc., etc. But that was the highest quality one. Um, it never got big acceptance amongst Leonardo scholars or more generally in the in the world of art history. So there was one prime version, but it, it didn't shape up as the original. I see. Um, now, what about Leonardo's religious views, and how does this painting of um, Christ fit in with that? Yeah. Can I interrupt just again? The man doing my door is about to go, and I need to pay him. <laughs> Sorry, okay. Alex. That's okay. All right. So, uh, again, this is live, so uh, we have to uh, move on here. Um, and um, the... One of the questions I was thinking about asking him is um, <clears throat> the fresco of the Last Supper. I can recall um, it seemed like only 20 or 25 years ago when they were restoring that. And um, it was a major restoration. And now I see um, I see recent images of it, and it looks like it is in total disrepair, like it needs restoration again. So that's a, a question I had wondering how this happened also another thing is in uh the florence town hall there was a uh there's a question whether there's a hidden uh leonardo behind one of the walls that were constructed oh you're back already okay. yeah yeah they, they, no they, they've been had my doors back and front off the hinges to fit draft excluders much needed in this weather. And being an old house, it's taken twice as long as expected. Uh, and you're right. You're, um, are you, uh, you're in England. Where are you in England? I'm in Woodstock, which is, uh, 10 miles Northwest of Oxford and on the edge of Blenheim park, Blenheim palace. Ah, I see. Okay. Um, so, we're, we were on. We we're talking about religious beliefs, um, and how that fit in with uh, the narrative of this painting. Yeah, the first thing to say is that the idea that Leonardo is some kind of heretic and he espouses that Saint John is more important than Christ. There is absolutely no evidence of that at all, and all this sort of Dan Brown stuff, which has become very popular as Leonardo is a as a heretic, as a, uh, as um, not believing in in Christ, etc., there is no evidence for that within Leonardo's work at all. It's a fantasy imposed from outside. Ah. And Leonardo basically believed there was a God. Um, nature told him that that the perfection of natural forms, the perfection with which forms are made in relation to the natural laws. Um, declared that there must be a maker. Somebody had made the clockwork, as it were, and wound up the heavens and designed the whole, the whole machinery of um, of the heavens and the whole uh, business of how nature performs with its uh, manifest perfection, as Leonardo saw it. So there is this figure. Um, what he doesn't do, and this is a perfectly respectable philosophical stance, is to say, I can study and define this figure. He says, I can see God at work in the earth. Uh, I can see God's presence, but I cannot even begin to understand the nature of this sublime, ineffable, 
uh, infinite being um, and Christ as his son partake, partook in that even though he was incarnate, he was embodied in flesh. Hmm. It's, a, it's a doctrine of double truth. You say, well, there's a truth that we can encompass in our human minds, what we can see in nature, how we can observe God's handiwork. But there's a second truth, which is the truth of revelation, the truth of the holy books. And he says at one point, Leave, let be the holy books because they are the supreme truth. So he's not going to spend a lot of time discussing who is God and what is the nature of God. He says that is futile. All we can do is to understand God in terms of our life on earth and what we can see around us. I see. Well, I know he was uh, an illegitimate uh, child, and um, there's little known about the relationship with his father. Uh, but I just wonder, do you happen to know... Did he have some type of relationship with his father, and if so, was it after he became a noted artist or before? No, we know much more about this in the book which I wrote with Giuseppe Palanti, who's a specialist in Italian archival work. We found out a good deal uh, extra about Leonardo, including that his mother almost certainly was a 15-year-old orphan peasant girl. Um, Leonardo's father... The family, the uh, Da Vinci family, they were landowners and notaries. Um, Leonardo's grandfather, who brought him up, stayed in Vinci and didn't work as a notary. He, he, he looked after the properties and so on. Leonardo's father, a young man, made his way in Florence and became a very important lawyer. And while he was back on a summer's afternoon, fathered this child with this very vulnerable 15-year-old peasant girl called Caterina. Um, Leonardo is brought up in the grandfather's house. He's listed in the tax returns. And at some point, we don't know when, he went to Florence to be apprenticed to be an artist. He'd obviously shown uh, talent um, with Andrea Verrocchio, the painter, sculptor, master of all visual trades. Um, the relationship with the father seems to have been basically fine. He was brought up as a cherished child. The father married and produced, I think, something like 17 children. Wow. Um, and uh, Leonardo in Florence is always called Leonardo di Ser Piero da Vinci. Ser is the prefix for a lawyer. So Leonardo, the son of, uh, Sir, uh, of Piero da Vinci, the lawyer. So, um, and two of the early commissions, the one for the altarpiece in the town hall which Leonardo doesn't seem to have done much work on and the adoration of the Magi for the monastery of San Donato a Scarpeto um, we can lead, read Leonardo's father in this was Leonardo was the one of the legal officers involved in both those organizations I see now let's talk about the auction um, when did you first find out that this thing was going to auction and what type of hype was there, you know, prior to yeah. this coming up? Well, I was surprised it went to auction, first of all. Um, Dmitry uh, Ryboloff left, was building up this major collection of pictures. And I'd been in contact because we were writing this book on it. So, obviously, we we looked at his co cooperation and so on. And... Um, uh, it was a picture he much admired and the one that uh, he was reputed as saying he would sell that last rather than the, the other pictures. 
but Christie's managed to um, persuade him that it it should be sold along with other of the pictures he'd been buying at, um, from Yves Bouvier at these very high prices. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was contacted by Christie's uh, and they said, oh, the, you know, the Salvator Mundi is coming up for sale. And they were obviously looking for me to support it as a as a Leonardo. I did a video for them. I said, I'm not getting involved in the sale process. But rather than have lots of silly stuff appearing out there, as happened anyway, um, I'm happy to do a video uh, establishing uh, what the picture is and how it works. So. Now, did you have did you have a pre-sale thought? Uh, I've heard a lot of people were tossing around the figure of, you know, 100 to 125 million. Uh, did you have those any type of thought as far as numbers go? Or is that not your thing? Well, what what's happened, I'm not an expert on, on sale prices. And indeed, with Leonardo, nobody was an expert on the sale yeah, prices. That's right, yeah. Um, uh, there was a guarantee of $100 million on it, which meant that Sotheby's had got some backer to say, at the end of the day, we will... Um, take it off you for $100 million. Um, it may have been one of the people who was actually bidding. It may, uh, so we don't know that. Um, the pictures which Bouvier, which uh, Riboloff left had been buying from Bouvier, he'd been selling them at a loss. Was Bouvier had these huge markups. And uh, Bouvier, I think, had paid about $70 million for the picture. And sold it for $137.5 million, I think it was, for um, to, uh, to Riboloff left. And I, I thought, well, it's going to struggle to make $100 million, which of course is enormous money by your and my terms, but nonetheless, um, uh, he'd been selling it at a loss. So I went to bed. Um, it was night being auctioned at night time in Britain I went to bed and I thought oh, I can find out about it in the morning and at two o'clock in the morning my phone begins ringing and uh, my emails start going ping 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 in the computer and um, so I, I then heard that it had gone for 450 million and of course the media were then on to me so I did the uh, for about yeah for the whole of the next day I think I didn't have any breakfast I had a bit of lunch and I was going around the, around the studios dealing with uh, with media inquiries and so on. It's com completely balmy. Yeah. Now, what is this, how does this affect the uh, the art world and the auction world? Do you think there is an effect as far as people getting involved in bidding with this? I know these don't come up, but uh, the magnitude of something like this? In a sense, it's a one-off. I mean, Leonardo writes his own rules. He is, a, in terms of world culture, he's a unique figure, you know, bigger than Michelangelo, Dante, whoever you, whoever you want, to, want, want to name. As being in the Leonardo business, I know how extraordinary it is and how he, he transcends time, geography, categories of people, etc., um, so extrapolating from this sale into the art market more broadly is going to be dangerous, but it, it does provide a marker. It means that a picture can be worth that amount of money. But it doesn't mean to say that there's going to be a sudden rush to pay um, prices for these things. It requires something exceptional to go beyond the world record price to that degree. 
Um, mm. Leonardo paintings are very rare, um, and the number in private captivity, as it were, even rarer. So um, I think it was a one-off. Uh, someone uh, asked me at one point, uh, what would happen to the Mona Lisa? What would it sell for? <laughs> that would be wild <laughs> well, speculation. I'm sure it would be in the billions, but who knows? Um, yeah, first billion billion dollar picture. Yeah, yeah. Now, and a bourgeois Florentine woman. It's amazing, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. Now um, the uh, the buyer. Um, there's speculation about the buyer, and um, that was you know tight lipped. And I know how auction galleries, I'm sure, sign something um, like a non disclosure. They will not disclose who the buyer is. Um, I know that even in the middle of last night, an article came out in the New York Times about trying to root out the buyer and speculation yeah. of the crown prince and all that. Have you been following this? Yes, I have. Um, uh, not least uh, my former students and various other people keep me up to date with what the New Yorker is saying. Um, it, the first report in the New Yorker was that it had been bought by Prince Badair or Bader, I don't know how you properly pronounce him, uh, Al Saud, who is one of the lesser princes, younger, obviously um, looks rather trendy, as some of the younger Saudi princes are. And it was he who the New York Times, I think, correctly identified as the person who was actually on the other end of the phone bidding. Um, and he'd only declared an interest the day before, apparently. Ah. And so Sotheby's had, uh, Christie's had to do some rather rapid due diligence to find out that he wasn't a chancer, that he was actually up to that kind of that kind of money. The second of the uh, of the revelations was based upon something from U.S. Security, who monitor all these people, and said that it was the Crown Prince, who is a friend of Prince Badair, who was actually the person trying to obtain the picture that uh, Badair, Prince Badair was a, a proxy. I have no way of knowing if this is right, but it, it sounds plausible. And Christie's tweeted saying it's going to Louvre Abu Dhabi. Right. Uh, going to go, go on, on loan there, which I, I hope is right because it's a public collection. I was there at the opening and I did some work for Louvre Abu Dhabi. It's a great, great building, and um, the Leonardo La Belferroniere from the Louvre is already there. Um, so I, I hope that bit of the story is right, and I'm, uh, I'm take it as plausible that it's the Crown Prince who who has bought this, and his young friend um, acted as a as a proxy to kind of uh, keep the heat off um, off the Crown Prince, as it were. Yes, I, I, I think that that's what I've been following, too. Now, um, I was going to ask you, but hopefully this will go into a museum one way or another, um, because when someone steps up like this and buys such an important piece, um, it's, it's a, well, I think it's a tragedy to be kept away from the public. And there's really nothing people fight with their money when it comes to things like this. There's no way to stop uh, going back into a private collection and hidden yeah. away. Yeah, well, even if it's in Louvre Abu Dhabi, uh, uh, the, uh, with the understanding we've now got, it will be on loan. So there's there's no guarantee it's not going to be sold on again. The problem for an institution is that it's quite outside even the Getty in California. It's outside what their purchase 
power is. So right. these are likely to, it's like, and my hope was that it would be bought by a museum with very powerful benefactor or benefactors bankrolling the purchase. This is the next best thing. It's somebody who does seem to be willing to share it. It's interesting because, of course, it's, he's a Saudi prince, Saudi Arabia, and not part of the United Arab Emirates, um, uh, of which um, Abu Dhabi is part. Wow. But nonetheless, it's, it's the obvious museum. I mean, it, it's, yeah. the, it's the world museum. It's the first world museum in the Arabic world. Um, and it has spectacular loans from from the Louvre. So, um, it, 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 within that Arab context of the Arab um, Emirates, the Arab principalities and kingdoms, it's um, it, it's the best place for it. Yes, yes, and I know um, there that uh, a lot of buyers of the major artworks that have come up in the last few years, world record prices, has uh, been Saudi buyers. And hopefully some of those works will be displayed as well. Um, yeah. It, it, yes, they're buying into Western culture. The, the the big purchases, I'm not an expert on the market, you know it better than I, but the Russians obviously have been buying large, the Chinese to a degree, but they're only dipping their their toes into old master paintings, as I understand it, and, and, the, and the Saudis who are much more alert to the, the history of Western culture. Is okay. Um, now, going to skip around a little bit here. Um, this has all been really fascinating. As far as Leonardo choosing his narratives um, for a painting, do you know how he'd go about doing that? Because I think how many paintings? I don't want to skip around too much, but they're known paintings that he did. There's not too many, right? There's about twenty if you include um, ones which are substantially Leonardo, but or produced directly under his command. Yeah, but it's a, it's a smallish number. This includes ones that shouldn't be identified early on. He was doing in Verrocchio studio. So I suppose if you want copper-bottomed, mature, wholly painted by Leonardo, I haven't done a count, but my guess is it would be about 15, 16. Amazing. Do you know how he chose his narratives before he uh, started a painting? The subject matters, they, they vary. Um, an altarpiece, for instance, the ones he's commissioned early on in Florence during the first phase of his career for um, the council hall, the, 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 the council building in Florence and for the monastery of Donato Ascopeto, those would have been given to him. One was a Madonna and child and the other was an adoration, so they'd be given to him. The Last Supper, for instance, um, that's an appropriate picture for a refectory where the monks eat and it's about uh, bread and wine after all. So that again would have been required. A portrait like Mona Lisa would be, um, there'd be a request from Francesco del Giocondo in this case um, for um, Leonardo to do the picture. And Francesco del Giocondo and Leonardo's father were in close contact, Leonardo's father acted as a lawyer for Francesco del Giocondo. Um, but Leonardo also did what we would call off-the-peg pictures. He writes to the King of France, or one of his intermediaries writes to the King of France at one stage saying, I'm coming to see his most gracious majesty and I'm bringing two Madonnas of different sizes or I will paint something as the king pleases. 
Um, so the smaller scale devotional pictures were, could be done speculatively. The Savatamundi is not very small scale, but it's it's not a big altarpiece. So either somebody said, I wish you to paint a picture of the Salvatore Mundi for me, or he undertook it as an off-the-peg picture. It's uh, it's an unusual subject for Leonardo. It's not simply a Madonna and child, so I suspect that it is the result of a, a patron saying, please do a, an image of the Salvatore Mundi for me. I see. Now, uh, when you're... Um up checking about your door being uh, fitted in there. I mentioned the Last Supper. Um, I've noticed from recent images that it looks in pretty rough shape, and I do remember it didn't seem like that many years ago it was undergoing restoration. Do you know what's what's going on with that? Well, the Last Supper's had a, a, a very fraught history. Leonardo painted on the wall as if it was a panel, he primed it with white lead, which is impervious to uh, to water and therefore doesn't let the wall breathe. He then used egg tempera, um, binding the pig pictures with egg rather than the normal um, fresco medium painting in wet plaster. And it, it deteriorated rather rapidly and there have been successive campaigns to restore it. Um, there were big restorations before and after the Second World War. The refectory was bombed in the Second World War, and the picture barely survived. Um, oh. And then there was, I think it's something like 12 years plus of restorations um, conducted in the late 20th century, um, which aimed to strip off all the overpaint and all the infilling and uh, then to fill it in judiciously to make the picture work. So, yeah, if we're counting percentages of the paint surviving, then The Last Supper is is much more damaged than the Salvatore Mundi. The amount of original um, paint surviving in that is um, is quite low. Again, I wouldn't wish to quantify it, but, uh, yeah, it has a very checkered history. It still makes its effect in spite of that. It's like hearing a a great record from a, a a great singer of the past on a scratchy record. These things are all remastered these days, but um, mm -hmm. you can still get a sense of its grandeur, its expressive quality, and its its uh, remarkable visual effect, um, even though it's something of a wreck. Um, now, just a couple more questions for you here. Are there any updates, as far as you know, um, in Florence at the town hall of the uh, the whether the Battle of Angari, I don't know if that's pronounced right, actually exists on the in the wall cavity of the town hall. Um, the Battle of Angari, like all things in Florence, has become a very politicized event. Um, uh, my strong sense is that it won't have survived. Um, there have been claims that the that a wall lining the put on by Vasari to to line the the wall in which Leonardo painted has protected the picture behind. Um, I think that's far from unclear to me. Uh, the the core samples that were drilled through haven't come up with the fine plaster which would be painted on. They've come up with some plaster and rubble. Um, and if you imagine that this is painted in oil, which is even more difficult to use on walls than tempera, 
and it's been walled up with all the changes of temperature, humidity, etc. And the chance of anything being left on the wall is very, very small. Mm. Uh, but nothing much is happening at the moment. It's just got uh, bogged down. The the conservation, the state conservation centre in Florence, the uh, Officio delle Pietre d'Ore, as it's called, uh, are not in favour of the investigation. The uh, the mayor Matteo Renzi uh, then became the prime minister of of Italy. He was in favour of it, but I think it's it's not really being pursued at the moment. So I I think that uh, that for the moment is a dead search. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was there, did they ever um, try to get some imagery uh, through the wall? Yes, they've done two things. Uh, Marito Saracini, the main conservator involved, has used various techniques, including sonic techniques, uh, like radar, mm-hmm. um, thermal Im- imaging techniques, and uh, more latterly drilling a very a very small core sample through the Vasari frescoes um, uh, and going through into what seems to be some kind of gap behind the wall. And uh, he said, oh, he got pigments out, which is same, the same as used by Leonardo, but... Um, uh, all the painters use the same pigments, basically. I see. Okay. Now, the last question I have for you. Um, you were on the show before talking about another possible uh, possible, possible uh, Leonardo discovery, the La Bella Principessa. Um, I just wondered where that stood today. Yeah, it stands much as it is. It's in a kind of limbo. The problem was that compared with the Salvatore Mundi, which was introduced to Leonardo scholars and we had time to digest it and research it, etc., etc., that was leaked prematurely to the press, which puts up the backs of the uh, of the art world. They'd rather know about what's what's happening. And it's been exhibited once in a state gallery in Florence, the um, in uh, Urbino, the birthplace of Raphael, but it's basically been exhibited commercially and it's very much in the trade as the term goes and it's become known as a kind of speculative trade object which is not the object's fault it's um, it's just how it is so the difference in handling between the Salvatore Mundi and the Bella Principessa the portrait of Bianca Sforza as it almost certainly is um, that's accounted for the public reception. M- most art historians haven't seen it. Oh, really? Wow. Um, yeah. So, uh, no, it's an unsatisfactory situation, and uh, it really needs to be out in the in the public domain in a more sustained way, properly inspected. Um, yeah. The uh, No, it, it wasn't handled very well, and uh, somebody who researched it, I obviously need to take some responsibility for that. I wasn't handling the publicity for it. Right, right. Well, hey, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, as always. And your website, one more time, is www.martinjkemp.com, correct? That is correct. I'm also writing this book for Oxford University Press on the Salvatore Mundi, which should oh, should be sorry. out next year sometime. But, so it's not quite finished yet. Excellent. Okay, well, thanks so much. Okay, my pleasure. All right. All right, everyone. So uh, that's it for the show today. Thanks for, thanks for watching, if you're watching on YouTube 
or listening, if you're listening to the podcast, these podcasts can be found at antiqueauctionforum.com. Also, you can listen in iTunes uh, or your media player. There's, I believe, 184, counting this one, uh, shows that are free to you to listen to. A lot of them are, um, you know, informational. So check it out, antiqueauctionforum.com. Also, my appraisal website, seaboardappraisals.com. Thanks so much, and we'll be back again with another show uh, to be announced.